Welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today, my guest is Christian Gernes, CEO and one of the guides at Isthmian Adventures in Panama. Welcome, Christian. Well, Christian, it's great to see you again. Since we're doing this on Zoom, we can actually see each other. Great, great. Things are picking up. Uh, we are enjoying the rainy season that is not so rainy this year it's kind of a weird weather it's been drier than than we expected to tell you the truth and here we're getting more rain than we've ever had so yes it's it's, it's crazy actually we have issues at the panama canal because you know the panama canal depends on fresh water for the operation and it's so low right now that they cannot have as many ships going through it at this time I just read an article about that. I was kind of astonished. Farming is insane. It's also being affected. And simple things of daily life, like Panamanians, we have a traditional dish which is called sancocho. And it's just a chicken, uh, chicken broth. But oh. you put a root that's called ñame, which comes from a vine. And it's very traditional in Panama. It's kind of, you know, the weekend soup that you make with the family. Well, because of the weird weather that we're having, there's a shortage of nyame. There's a uh, fungi that came in and started attacking the, the vines, and so we ha have less. So even, you know, you can feel it even in your, I guess, your diet, what you like to eat. First time in my life that I go to a store, I cannot find nyame anywhere. I confess that when we were in Panama doing some training, sancocho was one of my favorite dishes. I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. To me, it brings a lot of memories. That was my mother's favorite dish. So every Sunday, she would make me go to the public market in Panama City to get a bare neck free-range chicken Yeah, for her soup. It had to be bare neck free-range, otherwise she would not want it. Oh, my. <laughs> and do I read that your mother is Panamanian, but your father is French? Yes, my mother was Panamanian and my dad was French. Um, you could say that I'm the perfect example of what Panama is. Panama is kind of like this melting pot of people. Yes. Uh, it's kind of like, I like to say that we're, Panama City is kind of like the Latin American version of New York, where you walk through Panama City and Panamanians are hard to identify just by looking at them because we're such a melting pot. Sure. But when we open our mouths, then, oh, that's a Panamanian. Well, that's how you ideas. Lisa Brochu, my wife, her her father's side of the family is French. And when we did a training event in Normandy, we would walk around and she'd go, oh, that looks like my uncle. That looks like my aunt. <laughs> because <laughs> suddenly she was in an area where uh, everyone looked like her father's family. Is, is her family from Normandy? Yes. Oh, her ancestors? Oh, my her grandfather was from Normandy. Uh, yeah, they were from that area too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. much about it. We don't. We lost that track of that side of the family. I just know that they're from. They were from Normandy, and that's her memory as well. Because they went to Canada first to work in the cotton mills, and then they came to uh, the eastern United States to the cotton mills there, and and then eventually to Texas. So she, she's a <laughs> Texas born and raised with French and. Oklahoma connections. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like when I say that was a perfect example, it's not just because of my dad and my mom. From my mom's side, there is Barbados heritage, 
there's German heritage, oh my. Nobe, native heritage. And then from my dad's side, it's French. And now, as you know, I'm married to a American, which is German, Swiss, Swiss uh, heritage. So amazing. Perfect sample of what we are. How did you get into this field? Growing up, what was what directed? Did you think you would end up being a an adventure guide? And not at all. Uh, as a kid, I'm I come from the area of Azuero, which is uh, the countryside farmland, but one of the driest areas of Panama with very little forest. There's parts of forest around, but not as much. But my mom comes from the highlands of Veraguas, which is beautiful, always green. All the summers, she would take me to hang out with my grandparents. And I would spend, you know, just going, hacking through woods and with my cousins, looking to birds and all that stuff. So that love for nature was there. Over the years, we moved to Panama City. And then eventually, my mom uh, remarried and she moved to the U.S. I went there for a while. And when I came back to Panama, I was trying to figure out what to do. And a friend of mine who had a little minivan for tourism, he calls me about 4 a.m. in the morning, desperate, because the driver didn't show up for work. And he's like, you know, you're my friend, you speak English, you're responsible, can you do this for me at least this once, just this time? I need you to drive the car, go to this tour company, and you will pick up the guy who will tell you where to go. And I went, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I went to, to pick up the, the minivan. I went to the uh, tour company, pick up the guide. And as he's explaining to the tourists, were Americans, by the way, uh, about Panama or history, natural history, which I was very familiar with most of it. And we get to Pipeline Road, which in Panama is one of the best areas for nature and wildlife and bird watching. And I remember looking at what he was doing, being very intrigued and very, uh, feeling in love with it right away. And at the end of the day, I asked him, uh, what do I need to do to get to do what you're doing? And he gave me the best piece of advice that I could have ever got. And that was Rick Morales, a friend that we have in common. A good friend, yeah. A good friend. And what Rick Morales said to me was, okay, is this your transportation? I'm like, no, this is it's a French car. Like, well, ask him that every time we hire him for transportation to appoint you as the driver, come with our guides, see us working, see what this is like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And at the end, if you really like to do this, then come and talk to me. And that's what I did. I uh, started driving the car for them. And one day, about maybe two months later, he calls me for an interview. He said, there's a, or head guy is going to interview a couple new guides. And I got you to be interviewed too. So you have to show up, be on time. This uh, is our head guide. He's very serious. So I did. I show up on time. And there was Hernan Arauz. Oh, my. Which you also know. Oh, yes. And Hernan starts kind of like asking me my questions about my background and why did I want to be a guide. And then he's like, okay, I need you to just, you know, during the trip, just be uh, listening to everything I do. We did a tour in the Panama Canal looking for wildlife. And he just kind of like once in a while will say, okay, I'm doing this because of this. I'm doing this because of that. This information is based on this. But at the end of the day, we drop the clients at the hotel and he's like, oh, I need you to, do you want to do this for a living? I'm like, yes. Okay, by Monday, I need 
you to bring me a document that says what time we met, where do we pick up the clients, how long it took us to get to the place, what did I talk about on the way, what did I talk about when we got there, what time we came back, what were the timings, distances. So I remember I got dropped on a corner, run to a McDonald's, grabbed a, got a napkin, and started writing everything I could remember. And Monday, first time, 8 a.m., I had the document on his desk. I ended up working as a freelance for a year with them. And then they hired me to, to run a lodge in the Caribbean, in Bocas del Toro, to be preparing to guide with them. And that's when I run into you guys. That's wonderful. Being in Bocas. Um, I remember we Rick Morales was getting into this training about interpretation, which I had no idea what it was about. And he's like, you should take it. So I signed up for it. I took the training, which was uh, Amy Ledbridge with an uh, interpreter from Mexico. You mentioned her before. Uh, Maria Elena Muriel. Exactly. And just after that, I went back to, the, to Bocas to keep running the lodge. And a friend of us from Puerto Rico shows up there from the Fideicomiso. And he's, he goes and visits us in Bocas. We, they were doing something with Ancon. And after that visit, there was the, the conference in Puerto Rico. And right. Ancon was sending everybody but me because I was kind of the new kid in the block. And he wrote to Ancon, why don't you, we, we'd like to invite him too. Uh, so I got to go to that conference. So everything was kind of linked, opportunities that came along. And the more I learned, the more I fell in love with it. Uh, taking the CIG was kind of an eye-opener because we knew to do certain things, but putting those things in perspective, why do you need to do this? What's the effect on the, on the audience when you do this or that? And I've, it's just what been over 20 years now. Wow. The Panamanian Authority of Tourism, the Tourism of Panama was created. They passed a law that Panamanians had, the guys had to be certified, but there was no certification program in Panama. And Rick Morales, and Benicio Wilson, and myself, we got together with other two amazing ladies, uh, Annie Young, you know, and we, Mika was involved in that, which is my wife was above on it too. And we did a training with APSO, which is the Panama Association for Sustainable Tourism. And, and we included the CIG training on that one. And that was Rick Morales with Amy Ledbridge. And so we, I took it then again. And over time, Rick Morales has done a couple of trainings where he includes certain topics of CIG. And I've been there listening. And well, last year I took it again with you. We enjoyed having you in the class. Uh, I did not realize you had that much history with that course. Uh, you know, Maria Elena Muriel was the first certified interpretive guide. Because, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. When we, when we tested that course, Lisa and I had been working all of the year 2000 on putting it together. And we got a call from the Tourism Council of some sort in uh, Baja, del Sur, Mexico. And they said, uh, we have a group of kind of a mixture of indigenous guides and professional tourism guides that we would like, we hear you have a new course. And 
we said, well, this would be the first course ever and we would be testing it with you. And they said, that's fine. And we said, it's, it's in English. We both know a little Spanish, but way too little to train in Spanish. And they said, that's fine. They, they speak English. Our clients speak English. And Maria Elena volunteered to go first when she gave her 10-minute thematic interpretive talk. And it was brilliant. We still use it as a resource in training. So oddly, uh, there's some 50 or 60,000 people that have been through the course now. She was the first one. Wow, and I didn't know that. When you start naming Rick Morales and uh, Hernan Arruz and uh, Benicio, old friends, great people. Lisa and I, on one of our trips down there to train, said we want to spend a few days getting to know Panama. And Rick was our guide. And it's fantastic. As always, it was masterful. It was great. It's interesting how things got together. I mean, from that training uh, that we did with APSO, uh, Beatrice Schmidt was also involved. And that's when she was, her presentation was all about the Panama Rainforest Discovery Center, which still uh, operates today, is a destination around the Panama Canal. And now they're expanding to have an area for guide training. Oh, so. Wow. You know, and then the other day, I got a message from Eliezer Nieves telling me that he was in Panama on his way somewhere and that he was looking at these birds at the airport if I could help him to ID them. And it was Eliezer Nieves, the one that told Ancon Expeditions you should include him in the trip to Puerto Rico because he is a CIG and we would like to have him take part of it, which was a great, great opportunity. Well, you have a, an impressive landscape in your country. And the diversity of cultures just adds to it. We were just astonished taking a trip by canoe up the Chagres River with the Embra being, now I'm forgetting the name of the other uh, indigenous people that are so famous for their weavings. and the uh, Gunas. Yeah. The Gunas, they used to be known as Kunas. Now the, the, the uh, correct pronunciation is Guna. I hadn't uh, heard that. Hemp. It's pretty, pretty amazing for such a small country. We have seven different indigenous groups, and all of them have their own heritage that they cling on to and their own personality, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, I got a uh, chance to work with the Nove people last year in a very remote community called Rio Cañas. Uh, it's only accessible to, by sea a few months of the year because how rough the ocean is. Um, and their their food, their oral history, their traditions, just their demeanor, how they they behave was pretty pretty uh, incredible. And recently, I did with the Teribe, which is a very tiny group, which they only have they are the only ones that have a king. You have to belong to the Santana family to be king of the Naso. And they just got their own reservation, uh, which we call Comarca, uh, recently. And now they have new roads that give access to the, to the area. So they're opening to tourism, looking at tourism as a way to improve their lives and be more sustainable. And I went there to help with a, a trail just to help them how to set up, how to receive uh, tourists and their knowledge about their natural heritage and their culture was pretty impressive. 
That's great. I mean, we went to a trail, they knew every single plant. They might, need, they might not know the scientific name, but they knew the local name, what was used for, and same thing for the plants. And there was everything had a story, which was what I found more impressive. Everything had a story in that trail. Fascinating. Uh, tell me about Isthmian Adventures, because you worked a number of different companies through the years. When did Isthmian Adventures start? Actually, we, um, I, I'm one of those guys that I consider myself lucky. I did one year as a freelance, but I was working mostly for Ancon Expeditions. Right, Ancon. And I worked for Ancon for many years. Through them, I was exposed to some of the top companies, tour companies outside of Panama that sent clients to Panama. And that's how, where I became a tour guide. People say that was my school. Yeah. That got polished with uh, the CIG uh, 9, but that was my school. It got to a point that I was handling pretty much most of the accounts of them, and I didn't see a space to grow. So I decided to open up and open my own company. I opened Sendero Panama, and we operated under that name for many years until we realized that there was another business in Panama registered with that name, and they had been registered two years before. There was a little differences on the name. That, that was Senderos de Panama, and we were Sendero Panama, which then, it means path, trail. Yeah, I was going to say, I think of it as trail. But, exactly. Yeah. And the, the issue with that was that they have a pretty known lawyer firm behind them. So we decided, you know what, let's uh, avoid hiccups or headaches in the future, just change the name. And at that time, we were working as a DMC. All the clients that sent those clients, they knew us. Even if we changed the name, we were not losing any clientele. We were not losing a brand because we, didn't, we had not developed a brand to sell directly. And that's when we opened Ismia Adventures. So operating has been operating for a long time under Ismia Adventures since 2018. Sendero Panama was 2011. Yeah. Um, Ismia Adventures was kind of, okay, we need a new name. And we start thinking about, well, what makes Panama unique? And everything revolves around the fact that we're an isthmus, a very narrow stretch of land that connects to larger masses. And if you think about our history or nature, everything is impacted by the fact that we're an isthmus. Yeah. So we decided, okay, we'll call it Ismian Adventures. A little bit, um, sometimes people ask like, okay, what's, what's the name, Ismian? What is that? We should go give us a chance to explain and, and tell you to talk about, you know, and explain why we chose that name. And we op decided to open our own company pretty much because first I didn't thought that I was going to grow more with Anchor but also I wanted to do things my own way. I, I, over the years, I have noticed that there were little things that you could do that would make things better. And we focused more into private custom tours because it's easier to deliver what the clients want if you custom made the experience for them. It doesn't fit all the market, but I will say, okay, that's too expensive if I have a private tour. But at the, at the end of delivering a product, if it's custom made to what they're looking for, what their needs are, the guys appointed based on the experience on what they're looking for, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And so now we're, we're Ismail Adventures and Side by side, we run in uh, the Naturalist Guide Academy. 
when we opened Sendero Panama, we realized that even guys like Benicio Wilson, uh, Christian Moreno, they all had a lot of experience, but there was always something new that we wanted to learn. So we started creating all these uh, workshops and trainings just to learn new things and to bring down the costs won by guys even from other companies. So it will be more affordable. Sure. And eventually people start asking us for more trainings and more trainings. And that's how we end up with the Natural Guide Academy, which now has taken up. We did a guide training for the Tourism Bureau of Panama last year. And we're probably going to be doing other two this year. Wonderful. That's so good. we have that side on the side too. When I th think of, is North America most of your market or do you get a, Europeans and Asians and others? For Panama, in overall, mo uh, is a, mostly it's Americans, but we get a lot of Europeans and some Latin Americans. Panama is seen as a destination for South Americans. They mix it with shopping uh, because being where we are, having the port terminals here, we have products from all over the world. Sure. And sometimes it's cheaper for them to buy here than in their own countries. But for our company, pretty much our market is all U.S., a little bit of Canada, a little bit of Europe, but mostly U.S. Yeah. And the pandemic really landed hard for almost everyone in tourism. How has it been for you folks? It was hard. and We're still recovering from it. Um, in Ismian, it was a hard blow because, like I said before, we used to just work as a DMC. And so we didn't have a brand to sell. We were just known for those companies to send those clients. And when they start letting go their staff, you know, to survive pretty much, uh, we lost that staff that was willing to sell Panama. And all of a sudden, we end up ourselves without business. I think what kept us at least busy was the fact that we were a small company. We we're a family-owned operating company. We outsource all the services, even the guides. We outsource them. We paid them well, we help with training, but we don't have them full-time staff and that helped us survive. And what I think helped me personally to survive the, the COVID and ongoing crazy was that when 2019, at the end of 2019, the ATP, which is Panama, Panama's Tourism Bureau, approached us because they wanted to do kind of, do some guide training, do something for the guides that were out there without a job, at least, some type of training or something to keep them busy. So we put together a guide training that was all online with videos, workshops, and we did only the evaluations at the end on sites when things were a little bit more open. And that kept us busy. Yes, we did. We actually did it for free. It was kind of like, okay, we were given to the, acti to the activity, to tourism that has given us so much. And even though we didn't make no money, we actually spent money on it, um, being busy, doing something that we felt that was productive, that was good for people. It was very beneficial for myself and I will say for all, the whole team. And that's where the whole guide training got started because people got more interested on it. Yeah, you were building a future, even though you were having difficulties in the present. Exactly. And... Like I said, now we are working on a, our own brand slowly. And some of the companies that used to work with us and the clients are coming back, but it has been a very slow recovery process. Very slow. What are your specialties in terms of the tours or uh, 
experiences. How long is the typical client? Uh, 40, would it, yeah, with the MCs, usually it's eight to 10 days. Well, I think our specialty, specialty is uh, first that we're used to run programs all over the country. So, and because of the Natural Guide Academy and working with communities and guides, we have connections all over the country. So we can put, uh, you know, people in communities where our tour operators will struggle to go because they have no connections. Right. Um, and the fact that our guides are all very experienced guides, we can send them and they know how to run a program that goes on a multi-day from place to place and they know how to deal with issues. Panama is a country where, um, to smile, so I have to bring chocolates. Other days you have to be a little bit more tough with uh, services just to get things done. But you need, you need to know how to learn the culture, otherwise you get stuck. I will say that our specialty is that experience, know, know the, the resources and interpretation. That all the programs we work hard that they will have some type of message and a team and sub teams. We actually are now moving into creating interpretational plans, kind of like a, a structure of an interpretation plan for every single program that we have. That of course each guy will do their own type of interpretation with their own style, their own personality, their own anecdotes. But the made best the messages will be there. So we kind of give a an equal service all the way across. And that helps new guides coming in. It helps them a lot because they're not kind of like figuring out how this is done. There's a little structure that can, they can work on. I remember visiting Bocas and enjoying that incredibly. Uh, and now, of course, we live in Hawaii. Back then, I didn't dream I would be living in a landscape so similar to your tropical landscape. But uh, yeah. Bocas was, is fantastic. Like, that's where I run that. I'm pretty sure you stay at the Bocatin Lodge. And yeah. that was a little hotel that was running for Anchor Expeditions back then. And I love that, that place. I love Bocas de Archipelago. Hopefully, we're coming back this year with the guide training for them. It's going to be, a, we're doing a guide training that's mixture uh, with an NGO locally and the Tourism Bureau. And there's about 200 boat captains that will be impacted by it and about 60 local guides in the area. Going back to the place that I really love. That's great. Now that the pandemic is sort of behind us, and I say sort of, mm -hmm. Because I think we're all wondering if we're going to have another wave of uh, a new variety. But what are some of the other challenges of working where you do? Because I know there's your country is, despite being not big like the United States, is pretty diverse, pretty different to be down in the Darien versus. There's some challenges that have always been there. Um... I think connectivity in, in Panama, even though we're such a small country, connectivity is an issue. Uh, there are the poles where you can go to, like Chiriqui, Bocas, and the Panama Canal watershed. That's where everybody wants to go. Most of the people want to go. The areas are more developed for tourism. But then you have areas like Azuero Peninsula with an incredible uh, cultural, cultural heritage that most people don't go to because you have to do a long drive to get there. And that's most people, there's an issue with that. Uh, Darien is opening. There are more things that you can do in Darien. Things have changed quite a bit. There are places like we used to go to a place called Cana Field Station that's not open to the public anymore, that they closed that. 
but that was a place that you land and the airplane will go away. 15 minutes later, you were looking to three different species of macaws. You're exploring trails with jaguar tracks and taper tracks everywhere. It was a very magical place. But there are now new places that have opened. Uh, there are communities like Playa Muerto, which is an Embera community along the coast in Darien, which have amazing trails. The culture is very uh, preserved in the area. They usually keep an eye for nests of harp eagles, which is our national bird, one of the strongest birds of prey in the world. And there are other communities also that are opening. We're trying to develop uh, products that don't include just the Embras or the Wawunan, which are the two main native groups in the area, but also a little bit of the, about the Afro uh, heritage in Panama. We have two lines of Afro heritage. We have what we call Afro-colonials that came with the Spaniards. So they're descendants of the slaves that were brought by the Spaniards here. But during the construction of the Panama Canal, we have people that came from the former British colonies. So we call them Afro-Caribbeans. And their, their um, culture, heritage, similar, but different at the same time. And Darwin, what we have is Afro-colonials. Those that came, they're descendants of the slaves that were brought to work in the gold mines by the Spaniards in that area. Amazing music, food, a lot of history. So just mission, trying to show the truth therein. It's not just the natives and nature, but it's the natives, those Afro-descendants, and also the, what we call Latinos, which are the descendants of the Spaniards that came in and established in the area. So you have two diff three different cultures that are kind of intermingled in the area. And that's the truth that we, we like to show people, not just one side of it. Fascinating. I, for people who have never been there, I, I would just say that uh, when you say you're an isthmus, remember that uh, Panama and the Darien is that connection to South America, and so it's also traditionally been a corridor for smuggling for uh, migrants who are trying to get yes. to part of the. Yes, world. it is. And right now is a. There has been. Uh, I mean, it's all over the news. The uh, route. Of Darien, which um, we tend to operate away from that area. Darien, even though, I mean, this is small, but Darien itself is vast, it's big, it's a big province, yeah. it's a big area. So we keep our operations away from those areas and we keep them in areas that are pretty safe. Most of the Darien is pretty safe. Uh, just like any place, anywhere in the world, there are areas that you have to be careful. I will say that there, you'll find more dangerous areas in many capitals of cities in the world that you'll find in Darien itself. The route of the migrants, yes, that's a tough route, and it's not a safe route. And Panama, as a country, as our government, is struggling to deal with that because it's the part of where you want to be humanitarian, but yeah. it's also the part of how much you can handle. And what's the impact of, the, of this route? The more you help, the more people are coming. And the, if you see the videos and the footage of the, of the tracks where they go through, it's completely destroyed, it's devastated. What used to be virgin rainforest is a mud pad full of trash, and it is dangerous. Uh, but what the solution for that is, tell you the truth, I don't know. No, no, it's not simple. It's and not I, simple. 
And part of what I tell people, because we take groups to East Africa with some frequency, is that this is the reason you have to have an experienced guide company like yours with, with people who have been on the ground for a long time working with those different communities. And uh, I mean, let's face it, in America, just as you say, uh, there's parts of Washington, D.C. that you you need to not go to it if if you're not a member of that community. And there's the same thing in New York City and Los Angeles. Uh, we all have dangerous corridors or parts of our community due to difficulties that uh, go with drugs, crime, and other things. But uh, a good guide company are not only great interpreters, they're great at helping people understand the landscapes and the culture, but they understand what's safe, uh, what's reasonable behavior. And uh, exactly. I I can tell you, we've been out uh, with Rick and Benicio, and uh, I've never felt more confident than when I was in Panama with good guides doing things uh, in various parts of the country. So kudos to all yeah, of them. The, the Darien, it's pretty amazing, but you have to know how to visit it. It's, 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 it and it's a strange thing, Tim, about Darien is that was the area where the Spaniards came into Panama. It was in the Darien that they started. And you will think that we're talking about 1500s, and we still think seeing a Pan uh, Darien as the last frontier of Panama. And there's a reason for that. We don't have a road that connects with Colombia. The Pan American Highway uh, starts in you know, Alaska and down in South America, Tierra de Fuego, but when it comes to Panama, there is a gap, which is known as the Darien Gap. There's no road, but it's a national park. Yeah. And we always have kept it that way on the Panama side because we saw it as a buffer zone for many things, for social struggles, also for some of the diseases that track the deal that affect the agriculture in South America for coming into Panama. That has changed now with that. that path that the immigrants are taking that now there's a connection. Um, so things have changed. I mean, we used to go to Darien before all this started and always was, yes, there are areas that you want to avoid and there are areas you, you can take people to. Like you said, like Washington DC, like any big city in the world, any place you have to know where to take people. And it's having those connections, working with the communities, know who you can trust, you know, putting experience together, try it, make sure that it's safe, and then offer it to clients, which is one of the things that we kind of deal with the new guides and the trainings now is that to make sure that they understand that a resource by itself is not a product. It's not even an attraction if it's not safe and it's not ready to receive visitors because you can get the, the visitors in danger also, you can put the resource that could be the natural uh, heritage or the cultural heritage into danger, or the community itself can be impacted. And we have seen that happen in many places over and over and over because not realizing that there is a difference. A waterfall by itself is not ready to receive visitors. It should not be offered to visitors. The communities, if they're not ready to receive visitors, it should not be offered to visitors. You have to work with the site first before you can take people to it. Yeah, that sensitivity to the community traditions and the cultural traditions are critical. I applaud what has been accomplished in Panama because 
I felt it was some of the most unique experiences we've had in the world. And uh, how do how do people best get to you if they want to arrange a trip? What's what's the best way to uh, the the best way for us is you can find us um, on our website, which is www.ethmianadventures.com. And if you put go into Facebook, you just put Ethmian Adventures Panama, and you'll find us. The same thing with Instagram. And I can tell you that on Google, you can even misspell Ismian and it still finds your website because <laughs> I've done yep. it. <laughs> and you put my name, which I, I appear right away. Do you do a lot of birding trips? Is birding a big part of we it? We do. Yes. Uh, one of our main guides is, is, is Benny C. Wilson. Yes. But it's not just Benny. We have Jose Perez. We have Euclides Campos, who's some of the top birders in the country. Uh, and so we do offer birding all over the country. We offer multi-day programs or just a day tours, depending on what people are looking for, what specific birds, because some bird watchers will have a specific list of what they want to see and what they're looking for. Sure. Uh, so that's one of our specialities, nature, interpretation, family, family programs. We have a ton of experience working with families and kids. That's my specialty, kids, working with kids and family. I love working with kids. Uh, to me, they're like sponges. Yeah. You know, they they all were ready to to listen to what you're saying and learn about it. So, but yes, we do offer a lot of bird watching. Early in my career, I worked with raptors a lot, and started a raptor center in Colorado in 1981. And so, harpy eagles are one of those birds I've never seen in the wild, and uh, I I've seen Rick Morales photos of harpies. You need to come. Oh my! You, you need to come. We'll take you. I, I no, took I, actually Amy Ledbridge. I took Amy Ledbridge to Darien to look for harp eagle back in the days. Oh, that's great! I think when I think of all the birders I know that actually build their trips around that uh, bucket list opportunity to see something like a harp eagle, there's no better place to go than with you folks in uh, Panama. Yeah, and the, and the places to see it change from time to time. I mean, if our nesting is the, um, you know, she big enough, it's moving around, it's branching. But not recently, we had a site where we could see in a couple of days, you could see a crested eagle and a harp eagle back to back wow. in the same area. So it comes and goes. You contact us, we, we know where we can find them, and then we can put together something for you. That's how wow. it works. Well, I would also suggest the food is amazing in Panama. The food is a reflection of who we are. Yeah. You have some Panamanians, what's, what's a Panamanian dish? And people will say sancocho and rice and chicken, which is the soup. But sure. that depends where you are. If you go to Boca del Toro, they're going to tell you that it's rundown, rundown, you know, which is a soup that has coconut, some roots and fish and all that. But if you go to Shiriki, they will have the mono, which is just a meal wrap on a banana leaf. So each different region of the country have their own little things that they will offer. And to them, that's their traditional meal. So you have this mixture of things that you could try here. And Panama City itself is a destination now for cuisine. Of um, You go to, which used to be the French quarters, it's pretty different to from when you came and there's all these restaurants and they have all these different types of things that they do. And there's some that don't that do actually interpretative uh, cuisine, 
where you go in there and the whole, you sit down, it's a whole story about gra the grandma and the soup that she made and how she keep the broth on the smoke for months. And you can taste all these flavors as you're being told this story. I think that's one of the neatest things about good interpretation is that when uh, guides take you to new cultures or new places, they get the backstory behind how their cuisine came to be what it is, why it's unique, how they exactly. use kind of farm to table uh, approaches to get high quality food to people in these guest situations. Well, I'm going to think about how we get back there. I'm, I'm not going to say very quickly how that is <laughs> because at my age, I don't, I don't go anywhere very quickly anymore, but uh, <laughs> I wish you well with uh, what happens the next few years, because I think we're still trying to figure out what the pathway is after COVID. But I would encourage any of our listeners to think about Panama. If you've not done that, it's uh, a wonderful experience in a lot of different ways. Because uh, my memories of going up to Chagres with the Embra, of being in uh, Bocas, going on what chocolate farms. And now here I have a farm where I'm raising cacao. <laughs> I have a handful of cacao beans that I've dried in the sun. Uh, the, there you go. The chocolate nibs and then chocolate. And my first introduction to that was in Panama. So it was very exciting. And then Panama City is its own experience by itself. Uh, yeah, Panama City is unique in the fact that you are in a big cosmopolitan city, yeah. but you have access to a lot of nature yeah. and also a lot of culture. And the indigenous groups right there in the Chagres National Park with the Emberas and not far a day trip, you can go to visit the Gunas. That makes Panama City a very unique city. And most people don't know that. They ask, When they contact us, they always ask about you know, just a night in Panama as they arrive and they want to move on. And we're like, no, 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 wait. There's all these things to do around Panama City. You know, this is not like other destinations that you go and you need to get out of the capital to do things. We have a lot to offer just in Panama. By the way, Copa Airlines have the nonstop program where you fly into South America, you can actually stay in Panama a few days and do things without paying a penalty. Oh, wow. Great. So a lot of people have to take advantage of that. Does it require a visa to go from the U.S. to Panama? Not for Americans. I was going to say, I don't remember ever getting one. No, no, no. For Panamanians to go to the U.S., yes, you have to have a visa. We, we do that to you, but you, you don't do that to us. Nice. <laughs> I apologize on behalf of America. <laughs> and I'm going to send them to you. Well, you're always welcome to come back. We always love to see you back here. And take care of anyone that wants to come this way. Thank you for the opportunity. I'd love to get in touch with you again and talk to you. Well, take care, my friend. And if you get to Hawaii, come and see us. We will. Well, thanks, Christian, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Next week, I'll be speaking with Michael Glenn, the wordsmith from Scotland, an old friend. That's on Friday, September 14th. I want to remind you that September 25th, to October 4th. I have a virtual CIG course via Zoom. You can register at interpnet.com. October 13th, Lisa Brochu will offer a contract administration course. November 7th to 10th, Lisa will offer an interpretive planning course via Zoom. Both of those you can register at heartfeltassociates.com. I also want to thank Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music this time. 
Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.